this land. <clears throat> the first thing you'll note in your bulletin outline is that the geography was important. The first plank of the covenant is in verse 1. <clears throat> Leave your country and go to the land I will show you. And then that's followed by Abraham's obedience, verse 4. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him. Verse 6, Abraham traveled through the land as far as the great tree of Morah at Shechem. And the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. What land? Well, the land then was populated by the Canaanites. Verse 6, and through which Abraham had just traveled, verse 6 also, and beyond. Look at verse 8. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel, Ai on the east with Bethel on the west. Then Abraham, verse 9, set out and continued towards the Negev, that means literally the south, the southern portion of the boundaries of the land. And then finally... Verse 10, now there was famine in the land, that's where he's at, and Abram went down to Egypt. Uh, Jared, are you going to throw up a map for us? Okay, so we'll get an idea of this as I, as I talk a little bit. So the picture here is of Abraham and Sarai and Lot, who's a tag-along nephew, um, entering this geographical location from the very extreme north, from Haran, H-A-R-A-N. That is the location to which Abram traveled with his father, Terah, from Ur of the Chaldees. And Terah died there. You can look at that, chapter 11, 31 and 32. What is that? Well, you know from your geography lessons in school, this is the ancient Mesopotamia area, which stretched from the Gulf, um, all the way northward, forming what we were always taught in school as the Fertile Crescent, that uh, populous area, that fertile soil area, and so on. Uh, that would encompass ancient Babylon, you know, just a little north of Ur of the Chaldees, uh, the Tower of Babel, which we studied in chapter 11, all part of Abraham's idolatrous past. So coming out of the Ur, coming up through to Haran, and then down along the Mediterranean Sea to what we know as Palestine. In the modern day, uh, this is Kuwait, down in the uh, Gulf area, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Egypt, all the modern countries that form that kind of half uh, horseshoe there. Though I have to admit that not all of that landmass was part of the Abrahamic covenant. The idolatry part, uh, those lands, Babel, Tower of Babel, and so forth, those aren't in. Uh, he had to leave that country, remember? Let's leave that, and we'll go to a land that God would show. A more detailed boundary line for the land promised to Abraham is found in Genesis 15 at the ratification of the covenant. Remember uh, the animals that he was to sacrifice and divide into pieces, making a covenant row for them to establish the covenant. And God walked that row alone. Verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, now this is Genesis 15, 18, to your descendants I give this land, here it is, here's the boundary, from the river of Egypt, to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. That's a lot of ites, isn't it? Genesis 15, 18 through 21. Now here, the geography is described not so much by the countries, but by the people who lived in the land at that time. Ten people groups, many of them descendants of Noah's grandson, Canaan. The Canaanites were descendants of Moses' brother-in-law. So they would be towards the south there. Jael um, was a wife, the wife of a Kenite. 
Hebrew. She's the woman who drove the tent peg through Sisera's temple as he slept, Judges 5, verse 24. So there's plug-ins to other um, historical accounts uh, in the book of Genesis that we get from this text. Now, we can pretty well ascertain the boundaries of the land promised to Abraham by the sweeping statement of God in verse 15 of Genesis 15. I give this land from the river of Egypt. What river would that be? Nile. Nile. The Nile. From the river of Egypt to the great river, and it names it there, the Euphrates. Haran was just northeast of the Euphrates uh, River. It was between the Euphrates and the Tigris. So this then is a huge track of land. Starting up at Haran, coming all the way down into Palestine, all the way over to the delta of the Nile River. Did Israel, Abraham's descendants, ever possess this vast territory? Well, listen to what is written in the scripture about David's reign. You know him to be the <coughs> king. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations that he had subdued. He was a war king, was he not? And as a war king, he went out and whipped <laughs> the pagan nations surrounding Israel in order to establish his kingdom. He had done this with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued. Edom... And Moab, you see there to the uh, east of the Nile, or of the Jordan River, the Ammonites, you read about them, the Philistines, and Amalek, which would be the Amalekites. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadazir, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, Zobah's in the northeast. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. So He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all of the Edomites became subject to David. Now that's in the severe south part of the uh, land of promise. We read, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. 2 Samuel 8, verse 11 through 14. What about Solomon, David's heir? We are told, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river. And whenever you see that word river capitalized in your Bibles, it's referring to the Euphrates. From the river to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. 1 Kings 4. Verse 21, or just down a few more verses to verse 24. For he ruled over all the kingdoms west of the river from Tipsa, Tipsa right up on the Euphrates River, to Gaza and had peace on all sides. As far as the border of Egypt. In short, we can say this. Everywhere Abram put his sandaled feet, in his exploration of the promised land, God gave to him and his descendants. Now, it took some time, it took some centuries, it took cleaning out the Canaanites and so forth, and the establishment of David's kingdom and Solomon's kingdom, it did take some time. But my dispensational friends argue that Abram never received all the land, and so they reason that there is yet coming a day when God will give all the land he promised to Israel. And you might ask, well, who cares? Well, we care because a promise by God to Abraham is part and parcel of trusting the truthfulness of God's word. Even the minutest details of what God says must be proven true if our faith in God means anything. Let me ask this question. What is it that nations squabble over and go to war over? Anyone? Land. L-A-N-D. Very important to nations. The land has resources which 
All nations covet. Gold, silver, yeah. But other things. Oil, natural gas. Russia just this past week has announced they're going to build a natural gas pipeline all the way across Europe. Well, that's a good political move for them. Because then they turn the valve on or off, depending on the allegiance of those nations to Russian support. But there's other things. Timber. How about seas and waterways? Coal. Pastures. Metals for, graze, metals for grazing livestock and for farming. All this and more makes land a very coveted commodity in today's world as well as in Abram's. Today Israel has less than half of its original holdings and the UN constantly pressures them to abdicate more of their little bit of land to the Palestinian settlements. And so yes, I see restoration coming in terms of the land Israel once owned because land is important to God's covenant with Abraham. Listen to this enlightening revelation from Ezekiel 11. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you back the land of Israel again. Ezekiel 11, verse 17. So the first observation here is that geography is very important. Very important. Second observation is that geography is not important. You say, well, what kind of double talk is that? How can something be important and not important at one and the same time? Well, it depends on the measurements being brought to bear on the subject. If we're talking about Abram entering Canaan, scoping it out from the Euphrates River to the Nile, then yes, the land is important because God promised this territory to Abraham and his descendants. But if we're talking about the underlying spiritual promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac as the promised child is not as significant as Christ, the promised seed of Abraham, Galatians 3, verse 16. And the land, which was so essential for Abraham's homestead and livelihood, is not as significant as the nations that would become the possession of the Christ in his kingdom. This too has its roots in the Abrahamic covenant, though not spelled out until we get to Genesis 17. We kind of have to think of the Abrahamic covenant as a work in progress. Its outline, that is its skeleton, is set out before us here in our text, Genesis 12. It's just the basic bones of the covenant with some added skin and sinew added in Genesis 15, the cutting of the covenant, where the nations named were all Canaanites. But then, when we come to Genesis 17, more clarification is given. Abraham, Abram and Sarai undergo a name change in Genesis 17 by God to confirm the new provisions of the covenant. We read, Abraham fell down on his face and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. Now this is different. Here in our text, look at 12 verse 2. I will make you into a great nation. That's the initial promise. Now God is saying, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. No, and he goes on. No longer will you be called Abram, that means exalted father. Your name will be Abraham, father of many. That's what Abraham means. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. For the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Genesis 17, 
verses 3 through 7. And the sign of this expanded covenant was circumcision. Now, in verse 15, we're still talking Genesis 17, in verse 15, brings Sarah into the mix concerning the covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you're no longer to call her Sarai. Sarai means, um, comes from Sar. It's, it's a strong word. It means a dominant one. The kings were, were, had that title. Uh, the dominant ones. Perhaps uh, a reference to uh, Sarai's strong will as she uh, disenfranchised Hagar as wife of Abraham and sent her up packing with her son Ishmael saying to Abraham, get rid of the slave woman and her son for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Genesis 21 verse 10. Okay, you're not to call her Sarai anymore. Her name will be Sarah. Now just that little, little bit of change on the last part of the, of the name switches it from the dominant one to noble woman, princess, or queen. Wow, what a radical change. He goes on. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Genesis 17, verse 15 and 16. So clearly you can see as the provisions of the covenant unfold, there's a shift from the physical to the spiritual, from geography, terra firma, to people, nations, whom Abraham and Sarah would foster. And most important of all, from Ishmael and later Isaac, born a year later, being circumcised in the flesh, as marked by God as his, to those who as the spiritual offspring of Christ, are circumcised in heart. Paul saying, A man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. And such man's praise is not from men, but from God. Romans 2, verse 28 and 29. Now, the spiritual ramifications to Israel were stated by Moses even after Abraham. Here's Moses' words. Whenever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart, and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where you are scattered. We read that in Ezekiel, didn't we? He's, Ezekiel was still tooting the same horn as Moses here. From there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land, here we go, that belonged to your fathers, you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. You will again obey the Lord and follow all of his commands that I am giving you today. Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in the heavens so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, no. The word is very new, near you. It is in your mouth and in your that you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. This is found in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 and following. So there's this change that takes place from the physical to the spiritual. In the physical, yeah, geography is very important. In the spiritual, 
it's people, it's nations of people that's very important. It's a kingdom that is not so much centered on geography, but on the various nations that Christ will rule. So what I'm saying here is I'm bringing you to point B in our outline. The Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in Christ. It's fulfilled in Christ. Remember that Christ Jesus was Abraham's <coughs> promised seed. We have thought perhaps, oh, that was Isaac. No. Listen to Paul interpreting Galatians 3 verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say and to seeds, plural, meaning many people, but and to your seed, singular, meaning one person who is Christ. Galatians 3, verse 16. And of course, any that belong to Christ by way of association with Christ. Paul writing to the church of Corinth says it this way. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him has always been yes. Now listen to this next statement. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Wow. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 19 and 20. What is he saying? He's saying, look at any of the promises of the Old Testament. Just, just look at anyone that you want to look at. They all get their yes fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So any concentration on the physical side, the Abraham, Sarah side, the uh, Israelite side, and so forth, all of that, the kings, Solomon, you know, the dividing of the kingdom, the division of the land, all of those play a part, but they're just symbolic of what's coming. The reality is in Christ. You want to talk about conquering nations, it is going to be Christ that's that reality. Zechariah, father of John the Baptist. We read of him, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Luke 1, verse 67 and following. Don't sell the early New Testament people short as to what they could see or not see with regard to the Old Testament promises. Zechariah is a priest. Remember, he was struck uh, dumb because of he firstly doubted that he would have a child in his old age. <clears throat> but then God opened his eyes and opened his heart and eventually opened his mouth. And when he gets to open his mouth, this is the prophecy he gives. And he's not talking about John the Baptist here. He's talking about the Christ child. Peter preaching the gospel to the people of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost says, Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days, and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you, first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Acts 3, 24 through 26. 
See how <clears throat> even the New Testament preaching is locked in to these Old Testament promises. But, and here's an important part for us, the heirs are not only physical Jews, but all who are of the faith of Abraham. In Romans 15, verse 8 and 9, Paul writes, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, yeah, that would be Abraham and others, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore I praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Romans 15, verse 8 and 9. Or again in Romans 4, verse 14 and following. For if those who live by the law are heirs, and you're talking about heirs of Abraham's covenant, faith has no value. And the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. Brings wrath because we can't keep the law. So then you get the judgment for breaking the law. And where there is no law, there's no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Romans 4, 14 through 17. So the first thing here, when we come into Christ being the fulfiller of the promise, is that Christ is Abraham's promised seed. So how are we related to Christ? That becomes the operative question. Secondly, faith in God's promise of salvation makes us Abraham's children. Strange, isn't it? We're notified as the offspring of Abraham. Romans 4, verse 20 and following. Yet he, Abraham, did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. What was that promise? Well, it's Sarah, this old woman, and Abraham, this old man, are going to produce a child in their, old, in their old age. He goes on. This is why it was credited to him, his faith, as righteousness. Now the words, I'm still reading scripture, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. Romans 4, 20 through 25. So you can see Christ is the seed of Abraham. And now Paul gets into talking about how we become identified as the children of Abraham. Well, if we're the children of Abraham, then we begin to be locked into the Abrahamic covenant and the promises associated with that. Listen to this text from Galatians 3, 24 and following. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew, now, now we're moving out of the distinctions here. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, if you belong to Christ, then you, reading scripture, are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Genesis 3, 24 through 29. 
oh wow. We are connected into the promises made to Abraham of our connection to Christ through faith. And then in the very next chapter of Galatians, Galatians 4, in case there's any doubt as to what God was doing in the Old Testament, Paul begins writing in verse 22 and following, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. I'm still reading. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai. What happened on Mount Sinai? Come on, guys. The giving of the, the law. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. You see, the law can condemn you, but it can't save you. He goes on. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands, I'm still reading scripture. Now, Hagar stands from Mount Sinai in Arabia and it corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. Why? Because they wouldn't listen. The Jewish people would not listen to the preaching of Paul or to any of the other apostles for that matter. So he says, well, that's Jerusalem today. <laughs> Slave to the law. They think they're going to be saved by the law. He goes on. But... The Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman. Who would that be? Barren woman. Sarah. Sarah. Yeah. Okay. Be glad, O barren woman, who bears no children. You break forth and cry aloud. You who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than her who had a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. That's Ishmael persecuting Isaac, you understand. It's the same now, he says, but what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. What's he saying? He's saying we're Sarah's children. Part of that Abrahamic covenant, Abraham and Sarah, children of the promise. What about physical Israel? Well, they're not there yet. There's a physical connection. What about all the Arab nations that are physically descended from Ishmael, this second son? They're not there either. We have obtained by faith what they lost. Number three. The number of spiritual heirs in Abraham's family consists of, get it now, nations. Nations nations not just a few families here and there nations God the Father said to Jesus his son in prophecy you'll find this in Psalm 2 I will proclaim the decree of the Lord God is talking to Jesus he said to me you are my son today I have become your father ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9. Now we're getting to see the expansiveness of the Abrahamic covenant. It's not just this map that, that Jared put up for us. It's not just this little bit of geography. It was quite a bit in, day, in Abraham's day. But it's, it's the world. It's the nation. 
David puts it this way. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. For he has done it. Psalm 22, 27 through 31. There's the perspective for us. Or in another psalm we read, He will rule over sea, from sea to sea, and from the river... Ah, there's a, there's a reference to the Euphrates again. And from the river to the ends of the earth. Oh, you mean not just down to the Nile? From the Euphrates to the Nile? No, no, no. It's from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, why, why reference the river? Because it's where it all started. That's why. That's a tie-in to the Abrahamic covenant. God keeping his word. He will rule from the river to the ends of the earth. All kings will bow down to him. All nations will serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence. For precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. All nations will be blessed through him. And they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the Lord God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Psalm 72 verse 8. Wow, what a sweeping statement from the psalmist. Did they see some things? <laughs> they saw some things, didn't they? They weren't the dumbbells or the ignorant that we think maybe they were. This is the psalmist, and he sees this massive expansion of the kingdom of you know, in our little small world of friends and associates, within our church settings, and we are a small church, we have a tendency to think of the Christian community as doomed to smallness, to insignificant numbers, and having a minuscule impact on the world. But the scriptures must influence our perspective, and what do the scriptures say? John takes us by vision into the portals of heaven in the last book of the Bible, which kind of sets the picture for a culminating history. And here's what he writes. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll singing to Christ. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made him to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Revelation 5, verse 95. What are these? These are Abraham's descendants of whom God promised his son, Jesus, the nations of the world. If we are small today, and we are, look about us, we're pretty small this morning. Just remember, we're part of a larger scheme, a larger picture that dwarfs what the world is accomplishing. 
Number four, the identifying mark of Christ's or Abraham's family is circumcision of the heart. We read it earlier. A man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, no. A man is a Jew if he's one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Romans 2, verse 28 and 29. Good question. What does it mean to be circumcised of heart? Well, when God chided Israel for their failure, this is how he worded it. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to reverence him, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. Well, Moses is saying, you know, what, what is it that God is looking for in you? What is he asking of you? He's asking you to fear him, walk in his way, love him, serve him with all your heart and all your soul, and to observe his commands and teachings. He goes on. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Next statement. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. There is a good definition of what it means to be circumcised of heart. You stubborn people, you dig in at everything. You will not repent of your sin. You will not live loving God with all of your heart. You won't serve him with all of your heart. You won't keep his word, even the simplest of his commands. You're stiff-necked. A stiff-necked person is, you know, you're not going to make me bend. I dare you to make me obey. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord, your God, is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food, clothing, and you are to love those who are aliens. For you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12 and following. Now you have, in this little bit of scripture here, two-pronged thing that God is expecting of his people. We're to love him with all of our hearts, serve him, obey him, and so forth. And we're to love, we're to love our neighbor as ourselves even if he's an alien, even, even if he's not of your pedigree. Because remember, you were aliens when God called you and loved you. Paul writes it this way. You who are trying to be justified by law, that is doing good deeds, have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly wait through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. What's that? That's that imputed righteousness that we read about in Abraham. Why? For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has, <coughs> excuse me, has any value. Why are you getting all hung up on the accoutrements of the law? Were you circumcised? Were you not circumcised? Did you obey that? Did you? He goes on. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Galatians 5, verses 4 through 6. 
So we could say it this way. In summary, in summary, a circumcised heart is one in which the old life of loving, living to gratify the sinful flesh is renounced and put behind you and this to please God and obey God. Observe now this change in Abraham's life. The man was an idolater like his father Tebra. Before God appeared to him and called him away from pagan Ur of the Chaldees to a new land, and may I say to a new life. So Abraham was challenged to give up his religion, which was steeped in idolatry, and instead to start living life with God at the forefront. So what do we discover? Well, at the promise of God to give Abraham the promised land, we read in verse 7 of the text, so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. This is revolutionary. This is new. Again, from there, verse 8 tells us that Abraham began to scope out this promised land and to discover its extent. And at Bethel and Ai, we are told, there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So we have sacrifice and we have prayer. From Bethel, he proceeded further south through the Negev region, verse 9. And from there, even, even further, all the way to Egypt, verse 10. Not a very good experience for him, I might add. And we'll speak about that next week. But he at least touched down in Egypt. The farthest boundary of the promised land. And when he came out of Egypt... We find him back at Bethel, chapter 13, verse 3. And once again we read, chapter 13, verse 4. There Abraham called on the name of the Lord. We have prayer, even in his life of disobedience. Penitential prayer. Now the repetitive construction of altars to make sacrifices to the Lord and to offer prayers is Abraham claiming the land of promise and making it his own by faith in God. His new God, we could say. No, he's not a perfect man, but he is a changed man. He worships the true God as best he knows by the Spirit's leading, but he's no longer an idolater. When he sins, he's careful to atone with animal sacrifices and to confess his sin in penitential prayers. He is living his life, mistakes notwithstanding, by faith in God's promises. He believes the land from the mighty Euphrates River to that of the Nile are his to claim by faith in God. He has scoped out the boundaries. He has walked the topography. He has turned the terrain. His faith has given him an accurate picture of God's promise, which he claims as his own. The essence of a circumcised heart, brethren, is an obedient faith. Are you living your life with this raw abandon to God's word? God said it. Abraham's thinking. God said it. He said, all this land that you see, I'm going to go see the land. And he went up on a trek. It had to take him months, maybe a year or more, to trek it all out. And he was claiming, this is, yeah, I believe this. This is the land God's going to get. I believe you, Lord. I'm trusting in your word. And he has an altar. And he has a prayer station where he prays to God. This is unique. Unique. To the people of Genesis. I hope it's unique for us as well. Let's pray.
Holy Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Abraham and Sarah's life. We know that they were faithful to you and were circumcised of heart because your word became very precious to them. And they started to live their life by your word. Not by their wits, but by your word. And we could say it this way. Lord, they, they took you at your word. Very literally. God said, this is the land he's going to give me. If it's, it's, from, it's from Euphrates. It's, it goes all clear down to the Nile. I'm walking it. I'm seeing it. I'm claiming it. Lord, we need to take your promises the same way. We need to be circumcised of heart. We need to give up our sin. As Jared so ably spoke of today in the adult class. And we need to put our feet down on the new life that you've called us to, which leads us heaven-bound, not earth-bound. I pray that you'll help us to do that more and more each day. And the time is short and becoming shorter as the world and evil continue to progress. Lord, may we continue to be a light shining in this community. May we invite our friends and family to church, get them out to hear the word of God, tell them about our website, whatever's needed to get the word out. And Lord, may we look into the mirror of your word, as James tells us, and not forget what we see. What shall we see? We shall see sinners not yet perfected. But I hope we will also see sinners striving, praying, worshiping, looking to God to give us that circumcised heart that will love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We pray this in Jesus' name and for the extension of his kingdom.